welcome to today's show. My name is uh, Glenn Deason. I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. With me is uh, Alex Alexander Mercuris uh, with the Duran. And uh, uh, with us today is uh, Karin Kneisel, uh, which is uh, none other than the for former foreign minister of Austria, uh, also a well-known academic. So uh, let me just say, yes, well, welcome and uh, thank you much uh, for your time. You're most welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, so there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot to to discuss uh, now that we can dig into your expertise on everything from European politics, uh, EU-Russian relations, Europe's relationship with Middle East, the United States. But I, th I thought perhaps we a good place to start would be on diplomacy, as you have, uh, mm. as, uh, as a diplomat and uh, having written a book on diplomacy, uh, because um, uh, I'm curious where, where, where we are uh, at the moment with European diplomacy, because um, diplomacy largely is about dialogue with the other side, uh, to put yourself in their shoes, to understand their concerns, again, for the purpose of exploring common interest, resolving differences. Now, I, I often, I, I don't see much diplomacy anymore in Europe often. Uh, so again, the Europeans, uh, previously the champions of diplomacy, it, it now appears it's been almost replaced, if I'm not mistaken, by some pedagogic role in which uh, we, the Europeans, are the teachers to teach the students uh, around the world, which are our counterparts. So, uh, diplomacy often seems to now consist of uh, lecturing other states and even threatening uh, with sanctions. Now, maybe I'm too critical, uh, but again, we'll, we'll we'll pass it over to our expert, uh, uh, yeah, Karin Kneisel. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, Professor Thiessen, for the invitation. Well, uh, let me answer the question in a little bit of a chronological and biographical order for myself. Uh, when I joined the Austrian Federal Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the late 1980s, uh, diplomacy uh, was, to my uh, assessment, still around in the sense that uh, a Minister of Foreign Affairs would dedicate time to his colleagues, engage in a conversation, listen to and uh, do trust building. That's what it is all about. And I'm grateful to the period of the late 1980s, early 1990s, when I could, so to say, study the craft of diplomacy, because I always distinguish between craft and art. All art stems from some sort of good, solid craft. And uh, there are some ingredients to the craft of diplomacy. First of all, I would put time, uh, talent <laughs> that you need. You know, we have a lot of non-talented diplomats in all ministries of foreign affairs. And diplomacy differs from international relations. It doesn't mean when you have a PhD in international relations that by definition you are a superb diplomat. Because uh, when I quitted the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I had many reasons. And if I may take one only, it was uh, the absence of intellectual challenge. Now, this might be a bit disturbing for professional diplomats, mm. but uh, there is not so much intellectual challenge when you, when you do the day-to-day -day diplomacy, which is, in the end, a lot about a patient, discreet approach to sometimes a stalemate, to sometimes a lot of organizing if you are in consular affairs, uh, organizing visits uh, and the intellectual challenge uh, is not 
always that omnipresent, like like the one that you have as a teacher, as a as an analyst, as a writer. And uh, when I quit it after ten years of having served as a junior diplomat, I I was very much pleased in what I was doing then, just like teaching and writing and 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 doing research. When I came back as a minister. In 2017, uh, I had already started uh, writing a manuscript on diplomacy, and it was, let's say, 60% finished in my drawer. Uh, I didn't have the time then to finish it because I I was in the midst of of preparing for my mission. Uh, And it's good that I didn't publish it then because uh, having come back uh, at the top of the ministry and observing what has happened to diplomacy was quite disturbing. It was already by 2017, I could say, a deep decline in all what you can call the craft of diplomacy. Going to the ministerial councils, uh, there was not something I would call a political dialogue. There was no dialogue at all. It was just about reading the lines to take, reading the speaking notes, the talking points. So this has little to do with diplomacy and uh, what you just mentioned, reading to each other, lecturing to each other, that had been present already beforehand. And not only on the level EU versus the vast continent of Africa, EU versus EU applicants, whatever. No, we have also had it among EU members. So uh, there was already a deep, deep decline. And when we now jump into the year 2022 and and current times, unfortunately, one must say diplomacy is at least in a coma, if not dead, to a certain extent. And uh, it has to be reinvented because we will need it. We will have to do with it. And uh, Mm. uh, this art and and this, this art of diplomacy that you need going beyond the craft in very tough situations, in huge dilemmas, this still exists, and there are still professionals, but uh, in many, many Western ministries of foreign affairs, to the detriment of the legal advisor, it was all about PR and communication. Uh, uh, the, the PR departments have been endowed with tremendous means and importance. The press officer of the pertinent minister is much more important than the legal advisor, than, than the head of the political department. And this holds true for I may say 99% of Western ministries of foreign affairs. It's a bit different when you go to countries like India, Pakistan, uh, China, Russian Federation. I've seen there still uh, the the existence of Tur- in Turkey, of course, as well, because Turkey is currently one of the few countries practicing daily diplomacy, where the professionals are still allowed to to be part of of the daily work and it's not outsourced uh, to some communication experts Hmm. where has this come from is this a cultural change or is it something that has come down from somewhere i mean is this something that's um as i said emerged organically or was it imposed no, it has emerged, as I just had tried to describe over the last 30 years when I was yeah. speaking of the late 1980s, when I was a junior yeah. diplomat and, and, and going back to today. So I just tried to make a tour d'horizon of the last 35 years and, and it's, yeah. uh, it's so a it's, so it's been So it's been a progressive yes. decline yes, yes, throughout, 
throughout um, what 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 lies behind it is it because uh, i mean you mentioned ir because i'm you know in, international relations studies which i have had some experience of by the way i mean is it because that sort of narrowed our it, it, it's an inappropriate training for diplomats or is it because um, ideological considerations of other sorts have grown stronger or is it because it's become more bureaucratic or is it because we're overconfident in the West of our power perhaps and we don't feel that we need to do diplomacy anymore? Um. I would say, first of all, and this might sound a bit banal, but it's a loss of manners, good manners. Uh, you don't have uh, to have uh, a huge uh, training in diplomacy. Already some good manners would be sufficient uh, to, to change the current situation. Uh, and uh, good manners include hospitality. Uh, good manners include uh, respect for each other and and not um, not imposing your view. So it has a there's a huge loss of of uh, simply a well mannered uh, daily approach towards each other. And uh, so this is definitely one topic. And uh, the other thing is that uh, you said that maybe we. That there was uh, that that we thought or whoever thought that we don't diplomacy, we're not anymore in need of diplomacy. Uh, when you go back to the memoirs of uh, Thomas Jefferson, who before uh, turning into uh, one of the first U.S. presidents, he served as uh, uh, ambassador, not really ambassador. Yet. He was Gisanta, He was envoy of uh, the young Republic of the United States uh, to London and to Paris. Uh, and uh, in his memoirs, uh, you can read his deliberations about what he saw at the courts, especially of the pre-revolutionary France. And he coined already the notion of uh, transformative diplomacy. Now, transformative diplomacy has nothing to do with diplomacy because diplomacy means mutual respect and non-interference in domestic affairs. The moment you think like Jefferson did, uh, and then all his successors, uh, that you have to tell the host country how to behave, what to do, how to change, how to turn into a homo novus americanus, uh, that uh, makes a difference. And ever since Jefferson, I would claim uh, this has been the approach of, uh, of numerous countries. And uh, real diplomacy uh, is non-interference in domestic affairs, well behavior, and uh, and you have to have a good mix of discretion, uh, open-mindedness, curiosity, kindness, common sense, as Harold Nicholson stated. Uh, you shouldn't be a lawyer, you shouldn't be a religious missionary, uh, but uh, lots of common sense, and this is certainly gone. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't think anybody would disagree. <laughs> Go on, Glenn. Well, well, a lot of the modern diplomacy was really has much of its origin from the Peace of Westphalia in uh, 1648. And as you pointed out, this is uh, uh, the idea of sovereign equality was quite uh, a key component. But I was that's why I was wondering as well if something changed after after the Cold War with this unipolar uh, order, because uh, uh, it, it seems. It's difficult to have proper diplomacy if you don't have this uh, sovereign equality anymore. And it seems that this is part uh, a challenge, I guess, with this uh, ideological uh, 
uh, place we're in at the moment. Because uh, again, after the Cold War, the uh, there was, a, I would argue, could have been a good idea that democracy and human rights should have a greater role in the international system instead of focusing on zero-sum competing interests. But on the other hand, it kind of fueled ideological conflicts as well, because now it seems very difficult to have diplomacy when we talk about, you know, if if you have the, the champion of liberalism, which is us, and we're supposed, and diplomacy entails for us, the object to educate the subject, the subject or for the teacher to educate the student, you're not supposed to have a two-way, then it's just one, one side uh, telling the other one what to do. It's almost like a civilizing mission. Uh, so uh, that this is what our I don't know, this is what really stands out in the language, I guess, the diplomats use now, because we don't talk about uh, harmonizing our interests with others or discussing the policies of others. We talk about modifying their behavior, uh, you know, as a good, uh, good, good, good teacher. We, we reward or we punish. Uh, but often you see that assumption of unilateral concessions tends to be, uh, yeah, it, it, this, this tends to be the assumption, so you can never compromise because, you know, to, a teacher or the champion of democracy don't uh, compromise with the student. You know, democracy don't compromise with authoritarianism, just like good doesn't compromise with evil. It seems to be this, uh, um, it, well, it, it prevents sovereign equality if, if, if one structures the world in this order. Uh, well, I'm not sure if, if, if that's the way I see it, but uh, but but what what worked in the nineties uh, does it still work now? I mean, do you feel the Europeans are having more difficulty with this format for diplomacy uh, as the world becomes more multipolar? The question is to me. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, it's uh, all what you have said. I subscribe to it. Uh, I mean, ever since uh, the Westphalian peace and the order that we still apply. Uh, Diplomacy has gone through tremendous changes, but uh, in the end, one should not uh, lament too much and say uh, today's media have overtaken it because uh, when you go through, through the history of 19th and early 20th century, you will read uh, quotes, whether it was by Bismarck or others who said, well, ever since the telegraph has been developed, all uh, this, this has to, to say disturbed and put upside down uh, the, the the methods, but there still is something that is the core, the hard core of diplomatic work, which means to remain in dialogue on speaking terms under all circumstances. If you want to break it down to a mathematic formula, this is the one I may give. Mm. And this is definitely not the case in, in, in the current situation, and it hasn't been the case when we also go back uh, to 1979 uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran. Uh, the U.S. was ready to work with uh, the, the, the regime change to which they had also contributed to a certain extent if there hadn't been uh, the hostage taking at, uh, the, at the U.S. Embassy uh, and uh, the hostage takers uh, were hesitating whether to go to the U.S. Embassy or to the Soviet Union Embassy. The world would have changed, the course of history might have changed. Uh, but uh, ever since November 1979, there hasn't been any diplomatic contact between Tehran and Washington. Now, this is one case study that you can take in order to, to expose uh, that it can put you in a, in a, in a, in a very, very special dilemma. And that definitely mm -hmm. is the case 
when it comes to, to the U.S. and the Middle East and the U.S. Uh, towards Iran, to, to, to move us away from, from the current situation, which, of course, is a much, much more complex, complex one, uh, the collective West against the Russian Federation. I mean, it seems to me, Karen, that what you're saying, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a failure to understand that unless people talk to each other, conflicts can't be resolved. In fact, they might escalate to the point where peace itself breaks down. And I would have thought that the ultimate priority, the overriding priority of a diplomat is where possible to preserve peace. That doesn't seem to be something that people understand anymore, at least in the world of diplomacy. Or am I overstating things? No, of course, whenever you have a conflict uh, that is materially breaks out, then you speak of uh, failure of diplomacy. That's, that's, that's the way it is. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I always, uh, I never approved of all these attributes that you put in front of the word diplomacy, such as preventive diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, uh, coercive diplomacy, you name it, you have it, because it's at odds with what diplomacy is all about. And uh, diplomacy, by definition, is about uh, prevent preventing conflict. So when you speak of preventive diplomacy, it, it, it's nonsense, uh, because uh, diplomacy is that what it is about. And anything else is just uh, what you call in, in Greek grammar, hentia join. It's, it's a multiplying of, of, of adjectives which are needless. Um, so, as, 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 a, as a U.S. general, uh, Jean-Yves Klein, he was uh, originally from France, he once stated in, in, in a very nice conversation I could conduct with him many, many years ago, he told me, you see, for, for conflict prevention on a diplomatic level, you never get a medal called for bravery in the field. As, as a military, you can be rewarded with these kind of medals. You get uh, the, the publicity, but true diplomacy should be behind closed doors. And this is something that a certain Woodrow Wilson already had problems with. Um, so uh, his uh, slogan, open covenants, openly arrived at, as he was mm -hmm. stating when, when he made his declaration on the 14 points, is something that I also wouldn't approve of uh, because open covenants, yes, I mean, ever since the League of Nations, we had them registered in the League of Nations Treaty Series, later on in the UN Treaty Series. That's for sure this is something that is um, part of the rule of law, but not openly arrived at. You know, when you, uh, when you put the limelight of the media on each and every step, on each and every gesture, there wouldn't ha never have been something like the Oslo agreements, uh, speaking to, to Professor Deason in Oslo. Uh, that was uh, a very courageous act by representatives, both of the Israeli government and of uh, PLO officials, who could have risked also to be uh, shot for high treason or, or end up in prison. But they did it, and that was due to the fact that, that everybody kept quiet about it, and, and there was no um, hourly uh, accompaniment by, by the media. So um, the, uh, the, 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 these, 
these features that you need uh, apart from talent, good behavior. I come back to the good manners that I consider as, as preconditional in, 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 in uh, mutual uh, uh, approach. Uh, it also needs uh, to the, it, it needs discretion. There has to be silence for a certain time until you arrive at something that is ready for signature, ready for ratification. Well, see, sorry, Alexander. No, 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 go on, Glenn. Oh, it just seems as very, uh, yeah, the environment has changed a bit. Uh, it was just uh, not that long ago, uh, a meeting at the OSCE, and, uh, you know, when the, when, the, when the opposing side, Russia, is supposed to speak, you see everyone stand up and leave the room. It's, uh, it's very... It's a very different environment, not very conducive of uh, of, of, of diplomacy. But I, I want to ask more specifically about Austria because uh, uh, do you see it as, as having a special brand of uh, diplomacy? I'm thinking more due to its, uh, well, its neutral stance. Whenever we read case studies of uh, neutrality, there's always Austria uh, as a well, as a key example, something to be emulated. I'm not sure if it's too unique to be emulated, but uh, uh, but how do you see this impacting uh, Austrian diplomacy? This, uh, yeah, uh, this? neutral scope. Yeah, well, uh, I was born in 1965, and I'm a pure product of that. Uh, we are neutral. We are loved by the rest of the world because we are neutral. We are so kind and tiny. I mean, this was the mindset that that we were brought up, not only at school, we, we discussed it, whether it was in our English classes or French classes, we discussed the importance of Vienna's um, uh, being a host city to the United Nations, to international organizations, thanks to neutrality. I mean, that was all uh, the, the self-perception of uh, Austrian identity has been about for the last 60 years, 70 years, I would say. And uh, to get there uh, was quite a cumbersome way because uh, in the 1954-55, after the death of Stalin, uh, when negotiations somehow started, because between 45 and 53, there was no negotiation at all about the future status of Austria. It was occupied by the four victorious allies, just like Germany was occupied. And there was also the, the idea, the possibility of the country being uh, divided up. It, would ha it could have happened. Uh, so when the notion of neutrality was discussed, uh, uh, second half of 53, 54, there was a strong reluctance uh, by the then Austrian political class, which was somehow... Uh, had been fomented partly in prison, partly in, 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 in the opposition, in, in, in the underground, one must say, because many of the first, uh, of, of those who were then back in power had come out of concentration camps. So for them, uh, neutrality was something, how to handle, what to do with it. When it was, uh, when, when the, a law neutrality was um, was passed by parliament, uh, and it was added in the parliamentarian debate that Austria will conduct a foreign policy of neutrality, permanent and all-encompassing neutrality, guaranteed by the four uh, uh, allies, 
This is the big difference to the unilateral diplomacy of uh, neutrality of other countries. Along the, the practice, the example of Switzerland. So Switzerland was the, was the, the, the example that people could uh, familiarize with because Switzerland in the 50s, that uh, was uh, the symbol of prosperity and peace and, and, uh, and uh, attraction. Uh, and uh, the Austrian foreign minister and later chancellor Bruno Kreisky uh, was clever enough to understand that there would never be any sort of security guarantee for preserving this neutrality unless um, certain countries would step in in case something would happen. And this, uh, this made him push in a very systematic foreign policy of attracting international organizations. So uh, he was the first one to recognize, for instance, the Organization of Petroleum and Exporting Countries, OPEC, as an international organization, which, uh, which they had a hard time in, in, in convincing in the early 1960s. 60, 1965, OPEC took its headquarters in Vienna, and Austrians were very happy to have that. United Nations, OSCE, and many other organizations followed. Uh, coming to the year 2022, I'm quite astonished. I mean, I left my country uh, three years ago, two and a half years ago, due to uh, the prohibition to work and due to constant death threats, which continue until today. Uh, but I am quite astonished, intrigued by the fact that uh, the government, the federal president, uh, are somehow slicing up uh, uh, neutrality into a political and a military concept. Uh, and given that the European Union is now uh, about to buy ammunition in a common way, just like they bought vaccines in a common way, this will produce problems uh, for the Austrian concept of neutrality. And the three neutrals that joined the EU in 1995, Sweden, Finland, and Austria, Austria, neutral, not neutral, ever since joined the European Union in 1995, huge debate. Uh, and when you take polls today, you will see that uh, the majority, according to the polls, it's something like 70%, of the citizens are still in favor of neutrality. You can also consider it as a politics of opportunism, no doubt about that. There is a certain flavor of opportunism in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have, not for the first time, I remember the year 2000, we had a similar debate, and now again, there are initiatives asking for an open, fully-fledged debate about the security status of Austria, which could end up in an abandoning of neutrality. Now, Austria, in contrast to Finland and Sweden, has a neutrality that, that is based on an international treaty uh, where other states are signatories. So you, you just cannot abandon it because you're in a mood. Is neutrality, though, I mean, what you're saying is that since joining the European Union, Austrian neutrality has been diluted, which of course begs the question, given the extent to which we talk about the European Union and the North NATO alliance as part of the Euro-Atlantic system, is it really compatible that, you know, with 
membership of the European Union as it functions today. I mean, I you know I want to make the last point very clear. I mean, I, I can imagine other structures, European structures, but that this very politicized, very radical European Union, which we have now, is it really compatible with the fact? that some of its member states, like Austria, might still want to retain some kind of neutral, neutral policies? I mean... Well, uh, I, uh, let, let me put it the, follow as, uh, the following. Uh, when Vienna sent its letter of application to join the European communities, that was in summer 1989. So that was before the legal structure of the European Union with its common foreign and security policy had been established. Uh, the negotiations, however, started uh, when there was already an EU. And I, as a teacher of, uh, uh, of international relations, have always pointed out that it, it was quite a contradiction. And when I studied international law, if you had responded to the question of the professor, can Austria join the European communities? I'm, sp uh, I'm speaking about the, the, uh, the communities and, and, and not the European Union of, of the 1980s. The question had to be no, uh, because the answer would have been no, it's in conflict with the status of permanent neutrality. You see? Mm -hmm. uh, and the Swiss took it even much more serious. Switzerland joined the United Nations only in 2002 after two failed referenda because uh, a very strict interpretation of neutrality according to the Swiss, who always were very rigid about their uh, interpretation of diplomacy, said, we cannot try, we cannot follow UN Security Council um, sanctions for instance, on, on a Chapter 7 operation because that would be in contradiction with neutrality. Even so, Switzerland was a member of specialized uh, organizations, such as UNHCR, or International Atomic Energy Agency. But, so there was a problem, a, a truly legal problem from the very beginning, which was interpreted by us, the Austrians, in the way well, uh, we will go along with the common foreign and security policy, but we will not join any military uh, mm. operation uh, because we could only join one according to the Chapter 7 of the United Nations. Mm. Uh, when I look back at other war situations, namely Kosovo 1999, Iraq 2003, the then governments were very, very strict about transit rights through the territory. When you look into the year 2022, Hungary, as a NATO member, is much stricter, handles uh, transit of weaponry in a much more strict way than neutral Austria. Uh, and uh, there were also Hungarian members of government who said, well, we are... In, in a military alliance, but in that case of mm. the Ukraine war, we try to take a neutrality stance. And this also holds true for Turkey. Uh, so Austria, under the current uh, conditions, in my humble view, has definitely abandoned many features of its uh, foreign policy along neutral lines, along the example of, 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 of what Switzerland was in the 1960s, 70s. And uh, I wouldn't say that there's a problem right now with the current 
European Union. I would say there has been a problem from the very early beginnings, but now it's 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 exploding or imploding, whatever way you take it. Uh, and uh, the, the 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 real litmus test will be now in my assessment from far away uh, in this collective purchasing of ammunition. But it seems like it will transform uh, European uh, diplomacy because uh, throughout the Cold War, uh, you know, new, new neutrality was a very central component. You had this belt between the West and the East with new, neutral states. And uh, to a large extent, that's what the Russians demanded in Ukraine as well, that, to preserve uh, the, the new dividing line. So Moldova, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, that they have to remain neutral. But uh, but not only was that rejected, uh, which we're now also paying a price for, but we also see a, yeah, the traditional neutral states in Europe, be it uh, Austria sending weapons, but also now uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO. This is quite dramatic. The former uh, NATO secretary, uh, Anders uh, Fogh Rasmussen, he, you know, he said that in the future, if we have a conflict with Russia, uh, it's very important to have Finland and Sweden within because now we can put a blockade on on Saint Petersburg. I mean, this is this transforms uh, how how the East and West will operate with each other. Even Norway, we we're not neutral. We were, you know, founding member of NATO, but uh, we'll join in the beginning. But uh, uh, but still, we had the self-imposed uh, restrictions. We wouldn't have foreign troops on our soil, no uh, limit the military activity in the far north. But now we're opening American military bases on our soil. This was decided before the Russian invasion, by the way. And, uh, you know, which the Americans in more or less uh, open seas as a way to challenge the Russians in the Arctic. So the whole, all of Europe is now transforming. It's just not hard. It's not easy to see how this will be to benefit of stability and security. Uh, but again, there's no discussion about neutrality. It's just, uh, do you, do you counter evil? Do you, <laughs> are, are you, are you soft on Russia? Are you tough on Russia? This is how we seem to divide, uh, well, to be the intellectual depth of uh, politics these days. Um, which kind of wanted to take me, uh, yeah, to take my point to well, what you mentioned before that you were chased out of Austria because I thought, uh, well, I consider, uh, a classic diplomat, if you will. So I remember when you got married in 2018. You, you know, you invited the state leader of the Russian Federation to, you know, to come to the wedding. Uh, there was even a, you know, video where you did you danced with President Putin at the wedding. For me, this is how you know world world leaders should behave. <laughs> to uh, you know, to have this uh, uh, openness, you know, even during times of trouble, uh, to keep this uh, yeah diplomatic connections alive. But uh, the the political climate doesn't really permit for this anymore, does it? I mean, uh, well, it's a bit of a leading question, given what happened to you. But uh, but this was quite a dramatic moment in your career, because I, again, I, I thought this was a, a great moment in, you know, how, how diplomats should behave. But this was harshly punished in Austria, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you very much that you, that you, that, that you share with us your approach, that this is how people should behave, and it's a matter of, well, uh maybe uh how should i say that that what it always was about you know that uh that there is also some sort of interaction on other levels than just at the negotiating table which doesn't impede anybody from putting your lines or, or conditions or whatever 
but as you correctly pointed out, yes, I was uh, harshly punished for that. And uh, uh, I, uh, well, I have to live with it, but uh, the situation uh, is that we have lost all sort of this kind of, uh, you know, atmosphere that there is something beyond that that does not belong to the to the pure hardcore of international relations of political analysis of uh, ideological whatever you know i mean you can put all that in, into books and into courses but when it comes to a moment of negotiation you have to gain the trust of the other you have to put your vis-a-vis -vis at ease and this is something that is not taught in the classes that goes beyond what the protocol can do the protocol can be very helpful on on, on certain issues but in the end it's we, we are still human beings we are not yet algorithms we are not yet avatars that are sitting around the negotiation table and that's how we can still gain uh, the other or or try to make our position understood by the other. And when you look at, at, at big conferences, congresses, it was about the dance, it was about presence that you offer each other, it's about the hospitality, the food that you offer, the time that you uh, dedicate to each other, and all that is part of also what we have to call international relation, because human yeah. beings relate to each other. One would have thought that in Austria, of all places, people would understand that best. I mean, you know, I, I, I've never been a diplomat, but I've started the Congress of Vienna and of mm. course they all went they all, they all argued and quarrels and uh, had disputes about Poland and all kinds of other things but they all went off and had their balls afterwards and it actually helped the process of diplomacy along and they delivered a European peace which survived many decades. Do people in Austria I wonder understand how important and beneficial for Austria's international standing its neutrality has been and do people in europe and i'm talking about now you know the whole of europe understand again how enormously helpful beneficial it has been for europe altogether that there have been countries like austria which have been able to play diplomatic roles because they're neutral states they're able to talk to everybody they're able to talk to the arab countries you mentioned opec um not just not that opec is just confined to arab countries yeah. but also to the east asians to the russians that is i mean if you go to vienna which i have been it's you you sense this that it's the center it's one of those places that is at the center of things and that the world converges there. And I would have thought this has been enormously helpful and useful to Europe as the world changes and becomes more complex with all kinds of great powers, you know, that are non-European, uh, you know, appearing on, uh, appearing on the scenes, the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, the others. 
Yes, well, thank you very much for reminding us and the audience of, of Vienna Congress. Yes, it was the boss, it was the, 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 the dinners and, and the corridor talks <laughs> that we have today, also in the United Nations and other international organizations. Then we had other types of corridors, longer talks, more time dedicated to each other. But that what it was all about and that uh, you also had at... Uh, at, at, at other big occasions. And uh, let me add one important thing to the Vienna Congress. Uh, when you compare Vienna Congress to the Paris uh, treaties of 1919, at Vienna Congress, the defeated, which were the French, represented by, by tremendous Charles de Talleyrand, uh, they were treated on equal levels. So we are back to what Professor Diesen uh, started in the beginning. The, Equality of sovereignties, equality of sovereigns. And uh, that was not anymore the case in 1919, where, uh, well, many of the delegations, whether by the Hungarians or the Ottomans or whoever, they had to stand outside uh, in Trianon, Saint-Germain, Versailles, and, and waiting for the deliberations of, of the others. So they were not anymore involved in, in, in discussing and negotiating that territorial future. And that was still the case in Vienna in 1814-1815, even so that the real, uh, the real serious work was done uh, uh, later on in Ljubljana, in today's Slovenia, and in Aachen, in Aix-la-Chapelle. Uh, Aix uh, but uh, the, what, 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 what you were kind of describing about Vienna and this genius Luzi, this geography, that it's the place where you can talk to everybody, uh, it's a similar feeling maybe you can grasp in Geneva. Uh, it's a similar feeling that maybe you can grasp also in Istanbul. Uh, but I would say that uh, with the recent attitude, the statements, the taking of sides by Austria as an EU member, but also by Switzerland, has given tremendous harm to both cities as meeting grounds. Both cities played a tremendous role in the uh, Iran negotiations. Uh, there, were, there were rotations between uh, Geneva and Vienna. Actually, on a footnote, uh, the reason we have for this rotation was a very banal, very simple one. It was about hotel reservations uh, because you needed, so to say, the, the hotel meeting grounds and they were not always available. So the rotation was a very technical one. But Vienna, Geneva, Lausanne played a role in 2013, 14, 15, especially to, to host these talks between the US and Iran, which, which were interesting enough. Uh, I think it was Minister Lavrov, a uh, foreign Russian minister, who said already sometimes last summer that both Switzerland and Austria have lost their role as mediators, facilitators even, you know, we are not speaking about mediation, we're speaking about offering the hotel, the meeting ground, being the facilitator, uh, given to, to their stances. And uh, that goes beyond now joining sanction regimes, it goes beyond the fact that there was a lot of confiscation, freezing, uh, in, in legally doubtful circumstances. So, where are the meeting grounds? I would say that future meeting grounds might be maybe in Budapest, might be New Delhi, might be um, 
uh, might be Istanbul uh, because uh, for the reasons we, we discussed beforehand and uh, it's all about trust. Where, where, where do you go to? Where do you feel uh, as a delegation at ease? And where don't you where, where you're not risking uh, to be attacked? Uh, so this, this 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 these are maybe cities which are not anymore in Vienna or in Geneva, but somewhere else. But this, of course, displaces diplomacy, the center of diplomacy away from the European Union, the, the core of the European Union, because Austria is at the core of Europe. If you're in Austria, if you're in Vienna, you sense how much it is at the core of Europe. It displaces it because in Budapest is not quite as central as Vienna is. And of course, Istanbul, well, it's not even in the EU. And New Delhi is far away. So, you know, it diminishes. It's part of the diminishing of Europe's role, <laughs> which I think is something that Europeans perhaps don't understand. The more, at least this is how I think, the more centralized we become, the more we follow rigidly one set of policies, which we are altogether following, in a strange kind of way, our influence declines because people, they're not dealing with us in the way that they once did as a sort of multi, you know, storied, complex society where they could integrate and talk to the Germans and talk to the French and base themselves in Vienna and negotiate and come to deals. And they're now dealing with a single entity, which is perhaps not one that they want to engage with in that kind of way anymore, especially if it's caliber of diplomacy, it's quality of diplomacy has fallen in the way that you discussed at the very start of this program. Yeah. Well, um, when we remember the first speech by Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in December 2019, when she announced that uh, the, this will be a geopolitical commission, I was wondering uh, how that notion of a geopolitical commission could be reconciled with how the EU had been defining itself throughout the decades which was not about power politics, <laughs> which was about harmony and consensus and watered-down resolutions and, and, and trying to do some sort of tightrope walk where everybody could live with. And then there was this opening speech echoed by uh, Joseph Borrell saying uh, it will be about tough language and, and, and everything. And two years later, we, we saw the, the results uh, geopolitics, which is about power politics, for that, if I may say, you need a group of good geographers, a group of good historians, <laughs> uh, people who have really studied that. And yes, there has been a geopolitical tradition in France and in the UK, which took it over to a certain extent also from the Germans, who were the fathers, not the mothers, but mostly the fathers of, of the early days of geopolitics. Uh, plus, uh, there were also some Swedish, I think there was uh, that, uh, anyway, we, we have many minds behind the, the early days of geopolitics, but if you're very honest about what the European Union always wanted to be, you can't be geopolitical. 
in my eyes. And now we have gone a much a step much more beyond that. Uh, going back to Josep Borrell, the high representative, the chief diplomat who uses everything but the diplomatic language. Uh, we all remember his statement of April last year when he said very clearly uh, that war will be decided on the battlefield and not at the negotiating table. So they, they have all prejudiced themselves and they have all taken themselves out of future negotiations. Plus, uh, the quote by Mrs. Angela Merkel, former German Chancellor, who said in December in two interviews that the Minsk negotiations in summer 2014 were all about gaining time for Ukraine. And that was discussed at, in depth in Russia, but not at all discussed in the European Union. Nobody spoke about it. Nobody wrote about it. Now, I, I'm in full agreement that uh, at certain instances in a difficult matter, you need to gain time. So you, you do some sort of freezing, you do some sort of conflict management in order to get time to take out uh, the attention of, 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 a, of a difficult topic. But it shouldn't be to the advantage of one and to the detriment of the other. It should have nothing to do with gaining time to buy arms or to, to redevelop uh, security forces. It, it should be about something else. Anyway, with that, and here I may quote former uh, German Minister of Econo Economy and former Commissioner Günther Verheugen, who said uh, a few weeks ago in a German interview, such a statement has destroyed all future German or French uh, diplomatic role. So uh, here we are. I mean, uh, anybody who is honest about it has to say there is no diplomatic role for the main capitals of the European Union and there is no role for the remaining neutrals uh, because we have taken ourselves out of any facilitating or mediating role. I, I don't want to just press on, but just to quickly say, is it surprising in light of what you've just said that we now have a war in Europe? <laughs> because if there's no diplomacy, if there's no kind of discussion or negotiation and there's no conflict resolution, I mean, that inexorably leads to war, or so it yeah. seems to me. Yeah, yeah, it leads to war. And, and what I consider as so traumatic, it's not only about war between the officials, if you want, you know, because you always could say, well, it's the governments who are at odds with each other. By the way, also soldiers don't go to war against each other. It's the politicians who ask, the, or who, who give the directive to the armies to go to war. So soldiers, by definition, don't uh, are not the ones who start wars. Uh, but what we have today, uh, and I... I, I if you want, I'm a tiny, unimportant collateral damage of all that. There is a volume of polarization and hatred in many European societies, not in all of them. I lived in France for a while when I quitted Austria. And when I was in France and I said, I'm going to Moscow next week to give my courses, that was before the war. People would say, oh, how interesting, uh, wonderful place. I always wanted to go there. I've read Tolstoy. You know, this is the French approach. It's all about literature. When I would say the same thing in Austria or Germany, 
you know, that there was this historical uh, antagonism. Uh, even so, the Germans and the Austrians profited very much from Russian money. Uh, but uh, uh, but the atmosphere is a different one. And uh, uh, this, this degree of polarization, deep rift, this cancelling of Russian culture that we have now, this, this uh, prohibition of Russian media, all that we didn't have in the Cold War, we didn't have in, 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 in previous wars, we are, we are stuck in some very archaic uh, drama. And uh, I cannot think of any EU political figure that would be in a position to, to open this Gordian knot that is there. And uh, when we... Uh, when, when Viktor Orban calls for ceasefire and so on, I mean, he's right, the ceasefire is the first step. We are not yet speaking about diplomacy, just the ceasefire, so that people are not anymore killed. Uh, he's the only one. Nobody on the other side, including the Austrians, nobody among the Austrian politicians so far has asked for a true uh, ceasefire. Well, I was <clears throat> I was curious about because uh, you have a background in energy. Um, I, I was wondering what 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 would be the economic consequence of this? Because yeah, we already discussed uh, uh, the Europe um, no longer being a center of diplomacy. As uh, well, there's no more. Well, there's no one is neutral anymore. Um, we also have the yeah, obviously the the huge problem now that. Uh, um, yet both the French, the Germans, the UK and the US are all admitted to some extent that uh, Minsk agreement, the peace agreement for seven years, were, uh, were seen as an attempt to arm Ukraine instead, uh, which you correctly pointed out by arming them. It's, it's, um, you, you also prevented the diplomacy because part of the purpose was that they wouldn't have to implement the Minsk agreement by arming instead. But now... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, we also have the issue of uh, of the free press again censoring media. This uh, removing this liberal veil of Russophobia by uh, effectively opening up for collective punishment. Uh, that you know we're going after Russian sports figures, uh, athletes, uh, artists. Uh, it it seems to be a completely new chapter. But I was curious more about the uh, the, the economic side because uh, Europe has also taken some very unprecedented steps in this manner. I'm thinking then of. Uh, of uh, not just uh, freezing uh, Russian money of the central bank, but actually stealing it now as well, saying that they will confiscate it. And, uh, well, in order to make it legal, they will find laws, they will develop laws to make it legal, which is uh, a strange <laughs> uh, take on what the law is supposed to be. Uh, but uh, uh, but also we see individuals in Russia, they've had their assets seized uh, because they were accused of of uh, having ties with Kremlin again, no day in court, no due process. So I'm just uh, for us in the West, we often interpret this as virtue. That uh, look, look, uh, all the steps we're taking. But in the rest of the world, uh, many people are seeing this uh, as a very aggressive step. That you know, we have now abandoned the rule of law. So, um, so th of course, this is one aspect. But also the energy. I mean, we we talked so for so many years about Russia maybe using energy as a weapon, but now we cut ourselves off. Russian energy. Uh, uh, what, 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 what would be the consequence of this? Because uh, Germany, of course, the economic leader of Europe and its heavy industries are very energy intensive, relying on on uh, on Russia. And now, you know, Austria, of course, this economy very closely linked to Germany. How, how how is Europe supposed to 
recover from this? Or well, sorry, this is your 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 area of expertise. So how how uh, how how is this going to play out? Well, the, to put it in a nutshell, the Wirtschaftswunder of the 1990s and uh, the last 20 years were built on two factors. One was the relatively cheap, let's say, affordable Russian energy. It's not no energy is cheap because there's also, as we just have been speaking, the political price to it. Uh, but let's say it was an affordable energy uh, and and reliable, no doubt. On one thing, and the other thing is the Chinese market. I mean, without that, uh, the German automotive industry would have never flourished the way it has been flourishing. And uh, when you uh, when you increase the energy price by forty percent, and that's the case uh, when you import liquefied natural gas from North America instead of natural gas from Russia even without uh, all the uh, volatility on the global markets, you already increase by 40% because it's it's more expensive and the refining is more complex. Uh, plus, you have maybe competitors in Asia who are ready to buy that or that uh, LNG vessel uh, at short notice because they paid a better price. So it's volatile. Uh, and uh, this carries the risk of uh, factories turning into museums. Uh, in Germany now. I mean, this has been uh, the case already for the last 20, 30 years because we were outsourcing textile industry first, then steel industry. Uh, later on, we outsourced also uh, medical supply, pharmacology, medic medicament uh, producing and so on, which we realized during the pandemic it was not such a clever thing. So uh, we are in the midst of Deglobalization, which started some time ago, the French developed already 15 years ago the notion of uh, demondialisation, deglobalization, and it's an accepted term uh, in, in in France of the last 15 years. And uh, we are in uh, entering an age where. Things will be more expensive. By the way, also Chancellor uh, Scholz uh, said that uh, already last year, that the times of cheap products is over. Uh, but uh, that will have a tremendous impact on also how the EU as a, as a whole, as an entity, will continue to function if it functions, because uh, Germany could only be the engine, the one that said, let us do a euro saving mechanism, the ESM of 2009-10, when the euro was at risk uh, because of the Greek crisis, because the, the automotive industry made Germany so strong. The automotive industry stands for 55% of this net exporting power of this world champion, of, with its many hidden champions, the small and medium-sized family businesses, which are part of the supply chain for the automotive industry or for the petrochemical industry. So uh, Germany will change and uh, this will have an impact uh, in, in, in terms of uh, decision-making inside uh, the European Union because, of course, the 27 don't decide on on the equality of the sovereigns, it's it's Germany, Paris, it's, it's Berlin, Paris, plus the one or the other big capital on, on certain instances. But um, 
the energy embargo that this time, and to my knowledge for the first time in history, was declared by the customers, by the demand side, and not by the suppliers, as we had the oil crisis in the 70s, the OPEC oil embargo, the suppliers uh, uh, cut the supply, and, and that had an impact on the demand side. Uh, so it's it's a very weird situation, and I always claim oil, gas also to a certain extent, thanks to LNG, but especially oil, it's the global commodity par excellence. Oil will always find its way. Ever since oil entered world history after World War I, um, Winston Churchill had understood its importance by changing the British Navy from coal to diesel. And uh, and it has been fomenting globalization, especially in the 60s, 70s, with container ships and then the liberalization of the financial markets, as we know. So all that is part of globalization. And oil will find its way. It's finding its way through the so-called shadow fleet that had been established by... The Russian authorities, to a certain extent, I assume, and Russian companies, finding the vessels which are ready to, to work with Russia despite the oil price uh, cap uh, decision, which is all about insurances, uh, which is all about trying to put an artificial uh, limit on the oil price and saying whoever wants to sell or buy beyond that price will not be insured uh, and 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 will will have risks. Now we are seeing in the global trading that not only oil started to be traded in currencies going beyond the dollar, but we might also see this is my reading of the situation: insurance companies being created or which are already there. We we don't know them as much as we know Allianz and Swiss Re and the big reinsurers. But we will see also the emergence of new, not only financial mechanisms, financial institutions, but also insurance institutions, which are also financial institutions. So a lot is changing. And I don't see the European Union being thereby on the winning side and definitely not nature or climate being on the winning side because what is happening now, whether it's the UK, whether it's Germany, King Coal is back. It's, it's, it's coal-fired power plants that are now in number one electricity producers in the UK. The emissions of CO2 were never as heavy in Germany as they are right now, thanks to all the coal-fired plants and the oil-fired plants, plants. So uh, this... Uh, I would say there are lots of losers. Yeah, that's the. <clears throat> I liked what you said about the oil, uh, kind of where it flows. Is uh, you can see an indication of where globalization is going because uh, India, its imports of Russian oil used to be non-existent. Uh, in November of last year, now it became Russia became the main exporter of crude oil to to India. The, the leading export there and uh, with it of course they have to find solutions to new shipping new insurance systems and they're working together to put this all in place so uh, after this conflict is over i i think there's many people assume that europe will be able to scale back sanctions and will go back to the way things were but uh, but there seems to be a new geoeconomic infrastructure 
coming into place. Uh, so again, the diplomacy won't be in Europe. The insurances won't necessarily all be from Europe. The oil won't go to Europe. And, uh, you know, the banks, uh, they don't want to use the euros now. The Russians and others are also shifting to their own currency. There seems to be a huge shift undergoing. But uh, there's very little very little discussion I find about this. Uh, it's, uh, well, some of the media is picking up on de-dollarization that... Uh, uh, other countries are now using more and more of their own currencies, but uh, um, but but this assumption that one can use this tool of uh, sanctions uh, in perpetuity without uh, damaging one's own position it's it's quite strange, uh, but um, but maybe maybe it's built into the 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 the, the poor dip, the 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 poor diplomacy. Um, but it, I was wondering though how. Did you see any diplomatic solution uh, uh, to, uh, to this at all? Or because I'm, I'm looking at, I'm not sure what what your take on Nord Stream is. I mean, this is uh, uh, the the pipeline obviously were exploded. The Americans and Europeans suggest it was the Russians. Uh, however, now they're saying that. Uh, um, well, the American intelligence uh, services, according to New York Times, are saying that, uh, well, no, actually, it was, it was the Ukrainians or Ukrainian group. Uh, I guess the story that it was the Russians became a bit too silly for people to believe. So they're throwing the, I have a hard time believing it was the Ukrainians. So it looks like they're throwing their the Ukrainians under the bus here. I'm just uh, where did you see any diplomatic solution to any of this because there's i'm a bit surprised there's no there's no protests from from germany or or any any of the europeans not a protest i don't there's hardly any interest at all uh, uh, is it just going to go down a memory hole or where where where, where is this going well, the Nord Stream topic i've been following it ever since 2005 when um the then German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin decided on it in a political way, let's put it like that. And there was so much demand from the German side that in 2016, a new consortium was created to enlarge an existing pipeline. And I always tried to explain to audiences, but also to my counterparts when I was minister, because I, it came up, Nord Stream came up in many, many talks. And they always had their talking points, just their talking points. I could go beyond the talking points because it's my topic. And I always tried to explain Nord Stream 2 is just the enlargement of an existing pipeline because it was presented to the rest of the world as if for the first time ever, Russia would supply oil in that case or, uh, sorry, gas in that case um, in a direct way by circumventing transit countries, which was not the case. In 2005, we already had the political decision on that. Uh, Merkel always said, well, this is a commercial project. This is not political, which is and in inverted comma true to a certain extent, because for the enlargement, there was not anymore this big political cloud like for the first pipeline. Uh, but of course, such pipelines are always political to a certain extent. Any pipeline is always political. Baku, Tbilisi, Chehan in the early 2000s by BP, always political to a certain extent. So the rising protest against Nord Stream 2 uh, was there. And I was pretty sure, I, I also said it in public in 2018, that I believe that the United States 
would make the utmost happen so that Nord Stream once finished in its construction, and there were lots of obstacles put on the way by the US, even once finished, it would be prohibited to make it operative because I could feel the opposition. But I would have never ever expected that they would sabotage it, that there would be a fully-fledged physical attack against uh, an energy infrastructure. Um, so uh, that they would do the utmost to make it operative, that for sure, and we could see it all the way since 2019 with, with, with the different obstacles and the German uh, certifying technical authority, uh, which had to give, so to say, its administrative blessing, was also lagging behind the time schedule. And then uh, the war started, but with President Biden six weeks before the official outbreak and before the start of the invasion said, we will make sure that in case of invasion, Nord Stream 2 would not work. So um, the, the fact that the Germans remain so indifferent to what, what has happened that countries that are along the literal, uh, the literal countries along the, the Baltic Sea, whether it's Sweden, uh, I'm thinking especially of Sweden, because I think it was in their limit of country, uh, territorial water that the explosion happened. No protest by ecologists, no protest by uh, by government officials, and uh, to do now this blame game is childish. That's the only <laughs> that's the only answer that I have because uh, why can't somebody assume the responsibility and say, well, for these and those reasons, we did it. I mean, we we are in in, in, in very weird times, but it's also in weird times you could assume responsibility. And um, the thing with the passports, I mean, it struck me most that on this, was it a sailing boat? They found passports and these passports were Ukrainians. I mean, it's, uh, you really must take the audience for very, very stupid. It's, it's complete disrespect for the, the, the TV listener, for the newspaper reader in the case of the New York Times. Uh, and... Um, that's all what I can say, but I, 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 I'm still supposed to write a comment to finish a comment today on, on, on that very thing. Maybe when I have finished my, my piece, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm in a better position to give a <laughs> constructive answer. <clears throat> but it's for me, it's just, it's a very childish blame game. And you said, uh, you asked the question, is the US throwing Ukraine under the bus? Some even was. Uh, speculating, well, this is the beginning of the end. They want to get rid of, of, of a full, fully fledged support. Question mark. I, 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 I don't know, but but it's just a reflection of teenagers in power, as I always say. When you want to meet a diet, you have to go east of Vienna, not west of Vienna, to use the OEC terminology. Extraordinary, strange events that we are living through. I mean, Germany undermining its own economic um, future. Um, European states unable to conduct diplomacy when they invented it, and perhaps to some extent marginalizing themselves. 
and of course a massive deterioration as you know to your cost not just in basic manners but in due process and the rule of law across europe which is of course the region of the world that has that invented those very things and which was the base of our civilization if we're going to get out of this mess we need to start talking to each other not just with our opponents but with ourselves and start being honest with ourselves about where we are and where we're going and coming back to what you were saying earlier in the program Karen if we're going to conduct that discussion sensibly we also need to learn good manners with each other because no discussion can ever happen unless there's some respect and some courtesy extended to, to the other person or so it seems to me that's not a question that's perhaps a, an a set of observations if i can put it like that well perhaps that's why we need the austrians i was thinking because uh, we, we talked before about the vienna of congress and now the uh, the congress of vienna because uh, again I, I thought this was you know one of most as you pointed out as well the one of the significant thing is after the french had been beaten they were you know, they were included into this orga into this organization, became the uh, yeah, the key uh, security institution of Europe. Now, obviously, after World War One, when Germany wasn't brought in, this created problems. Uh, but also after the Cold War, we have to keep in mind that uh, at at a short for a short period of time, it looked like uh, we we did have a system based on the Congress of Vienna, because we did establish the Charter of Paris for a new Europe in 1990. I mean, the key principles, which Karen referred to, the the sovereign equality, it was specified in this uh, in this document, as well as indivisible security, no dividing lines. This was again the foundation for the establishment of the OSCE in 1994. I think by abandoning this, by creating perhaps a um, uh, a, a Europe uh, where, for example, uh, well, Russia doesn't belong. I think one of the costs has been, which one isn't allowed to discuss these days because everything is good versus evil, is that we, we don't have sovereign equality today. We're one side that can interfere in domestic affairs, one side that can invade, uh, while the other side uh, cannot. We also have dividing lines. We no longer have indivisible security. So I think, uh, yeah, these are things that would have to we would have to come back to if we'd want to not just restore diplomacy, but having some stability again in, in Europe, because um, uh, for, for, for me, the, this, this system was set up after the Cold War now. Uh, for me, it seemed to break down in February of 2021. This was when the, uh, Josep Borrell went to Moscow, same time as when the Americans and the Chinese met in Alaska. And uh, it was quite extraordinary because he came there to lecture the russians and tell them what to do and you know otherwise they would be get punished and this was supposed to be a reset and same as the americans meeting the chinese just having a long list of all the horrible things they are and what they have done and uh, and uh, you know this very condescending you know us yeah. the lecturing teaching you how to do your uh, do your affairs at no point a meeting of equals or any compromise intended so i think uh, uh, so we're stepping into a new world where you really need skilled diplomats if you're going to have uh, adjust this multipolar world where we can't just dictate to others anymore. But uh, I'm not sure where, where, we're, where we're supposed to look for this. So even now in this peace agreement, well, the absence of peace agreements, the only one that's come out is really China, isn't it? So do you, uh, yeah, which I guess would, would be my last question to Karen. Do you think this would be 
do you think China could be a, a possible path out of this war now between, well, indirect war between NATO and Russia through Ukraine? Well, uh, it was interesting that uh, Ukraine President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky reacted, let's say, in a rather interested way. He said, well, let, let's let's have a look at it, let's read it, and this is already an important thing. Uh, the, the Russians um, opened up their ears, they didn't condemn it, and that's what it is all about. The fact that Mrs. von der Leyen and Mr. Borrell and, and President Biden said, well, the Chinese can never be uh, mediators or offer something because they are too close to Russia. I mean, this is just um, th th this, this complete rebuffing of, of these 12 points uh, was not very clever, was not at all diplomatic, and it was it was stupid. Uh, because also uh, some EU officials said, well, this is not a plan, this is just 12 points. Yes, of course, I mean, you cannot impose a, a peace plan, you can offer certain points, principles. Within these principles, you have territorial integrity. I mean, this is something in favor of, of, of Ukraine. You have uh, the lifting of sanctions, this is something in favor of Russia, so it's a give and take. And this will have to be negotiated by the main parties to the war. Uh, and not to be imposed by the Chinese or by anybody. But I I think that maybe in Beijing there is some sort of deliberation also that uh, there is now a new chapter a completely new chapter in old dealings. And when I read, follow the, the recent statements by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of, of, of the People's Republic, it's like um, much clearer wording than we heard before. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that, 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 that gives way to a new chapter. Maybe in, in a year from today, people will look back and say, well, we missed an opportunity by not discussing the Chinese 12 points, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the way it was rebuffed by Washington and Brussels mm -hmm. was just embarrassing and, 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 and stupid. And they will still regret it because uh, the costs are going up and it's not only commercial costs, political costs, human costs, and, and, and. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the Chinese have the clout to do it because we also have to think about... Uh, yeah. Sorry, my dog is barking. Uh, we, we also have to think about uh, the... the political phase after the military phase. There will have to be... A, some sort of reconciliation, some sort of investment. And uh, and the Chinese are very present in that part of Central Eastern Europe uh, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of agricultural interests. Ukraine is a huge pole uh, of attraction for, for agricultural in, uh, in, uh, investments. Chinese are also part of that. Uh, so it's 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 I can I would only say it's deplorable that the, the, that this opportunity is missed 
we will see whether it will come up again. But um, uh, for the time being, we will see um, more military advances. And, uh, and I can simply hope that it will not get out of complete control with regards to uh, ABC weaponry. Yeah, but is it just poor diplomacy, or or do we want peace? Because I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of um, this German general, uh, or retired general uh, Harald Kuyat, who was also a uh, uh, chief of the NATO was council. Uh, I forgot the specific name, but he he said that you know during uh, that when the Russians invaded, they attempted to uh, again uh, find a push through a diplomatic solution with Kiev. And they were both close to it, but then uh, it was sabotaged, he said, by the British. This is similar to what you discussed before as well with uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Bennett saying that the West blocked uh, his negotiation efforts because they wanted to smash Putin, in his words. Or with the foreign minister of uh, Turkey who said uh, also the West blocked his uh, efforts of uh, negotiating peace because, uh, well, they wanted to weaken Russia. So I'm just thinking this... Um, uh, of course, that was that's a year ago since those negotiation attempts uh, were blocked. But uh, only last week, it was this retired general or current general in the U.S. Army, uh, Keith Kellogg, who he made a statement uh, yeah, a week ago that um, he called it the acme of professionalism uh, to fight Russia with Ukrainians because uh, the United States could knock off a key rival without using its own troops, and it could instead focus on China. So I'm just. I'm not saying that this represents all of the American, all, all the collective Western view, but but there seems to be, uh, this is also a view that's been taken by Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, Dan Crenshaw, uh, Mitch McConnell, that, uh, you know, this is an opportunity. We now have a situation where we can really, if not just weaken, even knock out the Russians uh, without using our own troops. Uh, uh, is, is this a huge factor in pushing back against diplomatic solutions, or do you see... Uh, is, again, is it just poor poor diplomacy, or is it uh, uh, just not readiness for peace? Well, you see, the old statements you just quoted, and which are important to be remembered, uh, at least for for, <laughs> for the sake of history, it reminds me a lot of an analogy, if I may draw it, with the eleven years of war in in Syria which I've been following very closely. You cannot compare it one-to-one. -one. Syria is, is a completely different regional conflict. Here we have to do with a truly global conflict in, in, in the case Ukraine-Russia. But uh, for 10, 11 years, we have been hearing the statement, put, uh, Assad must go. And only with a post-Assad uh, government, there would be some sort of talks. Uh, and in 2013, the Russian diplomacy had some sort, if I may say, of honorable compromise ready for Damascus and some opposition forces. That was before the emergence of uh, the Islamic State. It was in spring 2013. Uh, that proposal was completely rebuffed then also by the European Union, especially by the French. The French said in 2013, Assad will be defeated on the military battlefield. Uh, Assad is still there. Assad is coming back into the Middle Eastern Arab world and so on. Uh, and um, 
it's not an analogy that is helpful for, 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 for the current situation, but I'm just wondering, did nobody learn out of that? You know, because many officials inside the European Commission, inside various ministries, national ministries, are still around. We are not speaking of now any sort of, of, of analogy which goes back to the 60s or 80s. No, we are speaking of now, of the last 10 years in Syria. Uh, and and people make exactly the same mistake. Putin must go, Putin must be tried uh, according to international penal legislation and an and I mean, this is the language that is used. If you if you constantly use that language, how do you want to to to, to discuss also other topics, you know? Uh, so uh the French in particular, but also many other EU officials and Washington made tremendous wrong assessments about Syria, and they are doing once again a tremendously wrong assessment about Russia. Well, on that <laughs> uh, yeah, depressing note, I'm not sure if we'll finish or if you have a, a final question, Alexander. Oh, sorry, you're muted. Oh, sorry, uh, still muted. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, anyways, uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll uh, wrap it up by then. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to finish off by uh, thanking you so much, uh, Karen, for yeah, taking the time for, uh, for this and also thanking on behalf of uh, Alexander, who is muted. So uh, thanks again. We, we really appreciate this. And uh, yeah, best of luck with your work in uh, uh, Lebanon. Thank you very much, Professor Tizan. Thank you, um, uh, Alexander Mercurius. And um, I'm grateful for your interest. And it was a very pleasant, open-ended conversation. The way it should be, taking time for each other and listening to each other. When you have 20-minute meetings uh, between uh, EU officials and uh, other officials at the margins of wherever, that's not diplomacy. This is just uh, putting it into your list of meetings you had for the annual report of the ministry. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful also for, your, um, uh, for the atmosphere that you created for our conversation, which is rare in these days. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. I hope to have you on uh, some other time then. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Professor Dizan.